Welcome to Everyday Buddhism, making every day better by applying the proven tools found in Buddhist concepts. Welcome to episode 15 of Everyday Buddhism, making every day better. You know, inspired by the organization One Earth Sangha's call for Dharma leaders and practitioners to turn the light of the Dharma towards the ecological crisis we all face during Earth Care Week, which is October 7th to October 14th, my podcast today, A Buddha Belongs to the World, focuses on the very earthly foundations of Buddhism itself. One Earth Sangha is a wonderful virtual Sangha, if you're not aware of it. It's, a, it's an initiative offering resources and training and ecological awareness and engagement with a gentle Dharma focus. I completed one of their Echo Sattva trainings and wholeheartedly recommend checking them out if you're interested. And I will post a link to One Earth Sangha and the Echo Sattva trainings in my episode show notes on my website. So uh, during the Echo Sattva training I participated in, I was struck by One Earth Sangha's approach to engagement. As you probably realize, if you listen to my previous podcast about protesting, my approach to social engagement is not motivated by righteous anger, which as one of my promos for the protest episode highlighted, I wrote, there is nothing righteous about anger unless unless first transformed by wisdom. And One Earth Sangha's approach is very much based on that wisdom, as highlighted on their own website with these words, quote, with its thorough commitment to non-judgmental awareness, the Dharma can help us understand how we got to this place of endangering our shared mother, our nature family, and already marginalized communities on the front lines of climate change and future generations and our very home. In addition, how we can work skillfully with the myriad of emotional challenges we face in coming to terms with this condition. And finally, from a place of authentic and open connection, bringing forward a robust, compassionate, and courageous response. You know, the premise of this invitation, they go on to say, is of course that in turning towards this difficulty, we all have something valuable to offer, and that no one approach is correct. We can come together and share our confusion, our frustration, and our sense of that which leads onward. Unquote. You know, their choice of the phrase non-judgmental awareness in describing the Dharma approach to climate change engagement, social awareness, and ecological uh, situations and activity perfectly describes what I believe the roles Dharma teachers and Dharma practitioners can play in any social engagement. This awareness is the gift offered by Buddhism. It's one of the tips and tricks of everyday Buddhism that I talk about throughout my podcast. It is awareness without 
conceptual labels or emotionally charged stories. It's seeing things as they are. Too many, I believe, respond to social and political challenges and injustices with that righteous anger approach I mentioned earlier. But, you know, using that, oh, yeah, we'll show you approach, which I think is is sort of the attitude of righteous anger and it kind of smacks of immaturity in my eyes, that that attitude has the same effect in social and political action as it does in individual relationships. You know, we won't, we wouldn't do that one-on-one. Oh, yeah, we'll show you. You did this to us. We're going to get in your face. You know, that kind of attitude only heightens the conflict, which lessens the chances for the development of peaceful, rational solutions. You know, I'll share my thoughts on climate action in much the same way I shared my thoughts in the previous episode on protest, with some personal ramblings and musings, followed by some suggestions for practical activities you might incorporate in your lives. You know, of the thousands of images of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and Buddhist iconography, the most moving to me and the one most central to my sense of Buddhist refuge is the earth-touching Buddha. It's the image of a seated Buddha with the fingertips of his right hand gently touching the ground. You know, if you're unfamiliar with this image, I have included one in my show notes on the website, and I'm also running some promos about it on with that image on um, social media. So the earth, the home of humans, animals, insects and plants, and the earth's water, the home of fishes. You know, in Buddhism, the earth, the world, is not created for our use, nor do we have as humans dominion over animals. In Buddhism, animals are the same sentient beings as humans. This connects us all in an interdependent chain of existence, of life, of suffering, and of death. And as such, thinking and honoring the earth and its creatures is a deeply spiritual practice. For me, it's not of heaven and earth, but of being aware of, aligned with, and connected to the earth. It is there I find my heaven. Heaven is in the earth, and the earth is in me. This concept, this very concept of heaven being in the earth and the earth in me is rooted in the teachings of the Dharma, including the one from the Heart Sutra. Quote, form is no different from emptiness. Emptiness is no different from form. Form is emptiness and emptiness is form. And as Nagarjuna, you know, one of the most important Buddhist philosophers who was credited with developing uh, the philosophy at the core of uh, the Prajnaparamita Sutras, which are the ones that include the Small Heart Sutra, he stated, Nirvana, or heaven, if you allow this rough categorization, is the same as samsara, our world of birth and death on the earth. Philosophically, what makes them the same is the concept of shunyata, or emptiness, meaning all things are considered empty of inherent existence or their own discrete nature. 
because everything, of course, is interdependent on everything else. You know, we've talked about this. So I'm going to go off the track a bit here with some more ramblings on Nagarjuna, but I think it will be helpful for your understanding um, and, and also in supporting your own personal work with a, a, a non-judgmental or forming a non-judgmental awareness. So a little more on Nagarjuna's philosophy. He felt the term nirvana was useful for indicating spiritual release, but only if it did not refer to something that could be an object for clinging. Nirvana for Nagarjuna is, if seen as something inherently existent, is an illusion that will perpetuate more grasping, followed by more suffering. Drilling this down to the subject of our discussion today, and my claim that heaven is in the earth, leads us to the awareness of the futility of grasping at a heaven, grasping at a nirvana or something other than us on the earth, something out there. In giving up the grasping at heaven out there, our home, our very home, Mother Earth, offers us the heaven right under our feet. You know, tying this consideration of ecological issues, you know, preservation of habitat, protection of wildlife, tying it to our very life, our everyday life, is an important practice in helping us feel our interdependence and connection to our natural home. You know, we talk about everything being interdependent, nothing having a discrete and unique existence without everything else interacting with it. We talk about it as a philosophical concept, but how can you feel that? You can feel that by understanding the interdependence we have on the earth. You know, we are sharing this home, the natural home of ours, with the natural home of millions of other living beings, you know, insects, animals, toads, you know, frogs, fishes, everything. And for me, as I believe is true for many, my personal connection to nature, to the natural world, is something I feel deeply as I walk in the woods or sit under a tree or gaze at a lake or river. So it's also part of my practice. Just walking into the backyard in the trees in our vegetable garden, seeing the birds, the squirrels, the chipmunks, the toads, while I pick up my dog's poop, many times that's the best meditation of my day. You know, many live separated from this living earth in big cities. These big cities, sure, they provide economic opportunities, comforts, and conveniences, but they're alienated from nature. So it's no wonder to me that the spread of these huge cities and the separation from our true home contributes in part to the mental and physical illnesses that we see more and more of and to our feeling of separation from others, which I believe has contributed to the pervasiveness of what I call the disease of quote-unquote otherness. And in the U.S. and the West, that disease can be seen taking over our uh, political climate and our p- socioeconomic climate, the increase 
in the social and political move to isolationism, which is really founded on the suspicion and hatred of others. And of course, the cities continue to add to the heavy toll of polluted air and water on all beings. So thinking about the earth, how to be more a part of it, and how to protect its very health, it's not only an essential practice for helping our natural world maintain the balance that benefits our lives, but it can be a central practice for our own centering or grounding, the centering and grounding of our minds, the slowing them down, and sinking our bodies and our minds to the earth's rhythm, which is a much slower, steadier, and gentler rhythm than that of the cities or of the constant chatter of the internet and the media. You know, I think many people seek otherworldly images and refuge in their quest for spirituality. Grasping at the heaven, as Nargajunika talked about, grasping at nirvana. Grasping at heaven, to me, is escapism, not spirituality. And also the very antithesis of the Buddhist path and our path in this everyday Buddhism approach. You know, I wrote a blog post, A Buddha Belongs to the World, that I named this uh, podcast episode after. But I wrote this post many years ago, and I'll be using it as the focus point for our reflection, our continuing reflection in the rest of this podcast episode, and in answering the call of One Earth Sangha. So I'll share it with you now. My friend Julie posted a blog post called Dodging Goose Poop which inspired my blog post, A Buddha Belongs to the World. She wrote, quote, I walk around a pond every day at lunch, weather and workload permitting, and today I noticed how I tend to watch my feet. I look down at the paved walkway instead of at the billowy clouds or the cattails and willows swaying in the breeze. Presumably, presumably I do this to dodge the abundance of goose poop along the path. I think watching where I'm going has some value. I think it's good to look down every once in a while to make sure I'm not about to step in some. But where I am, but where I am is quite beautiful, and I shouldn't let the prospect of a little poop on my shoes distract me from all that is praiseworthy about my life as it is in this moment. Unquote. When I read Julie's post, I immediately thought of the earth-touching Buddha or earth-witness Buddha. The image of the Buddha sitting in meditation with his left hand palm upright in his lap and his right hand touching the earth has always held special meaning for me. Julie, watching where she is walking, dodging goose poop, served as a sort of mini symbolic teaching of this earth-touching Buddha image for me. At once, that image of watching for goose poop, watching where we're going, juxtaposed with looking at the billowy clouds, represented to me the value Buddhism offers as a philosophy of being of the world in things as they are, including goose poop. You know, according to the story of uh, the Buddha's enlightenment, just before that historical Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, realized enlightenment, the demon Mara who, by the way, represents the passions that keep us clinging, craving, and enslaved to suffering, tried to frighten Siddhartha from his seat on the earth. But Siddhartha didn't move, 
despite Mara's taunts and claims that he should have the seed of enlightenment for his very himself because his spiritual accomplishments were greater than Siddhartha's, Mara's monster army cried that they were Mara's witness of his spiritual priority. So Mara challenged Siddhartha, asking, well, who will speak for you? Siddhartha reached out his right hand to touch the earth, and the earth itself rumbled. The earth said, I bear you witness. With that, Mara disappeared. The morning star rose in the sky, and Siddhartha Gautama realized enlightenment, becoming the Buddha. I realize this is myth, but what I love about this story is that it distinguishes Buddhism from religions we are most familiar with. Founding stories of most religions, founding mythology around most religions, involve gods and angels from heavenly realms, bearing scriptures and prophecies. But see, the Buddha's enlightenment was confirmed by the very earth, not by a heavenly being. Compare this connection to the earth with the Abrahamic religions. You know, Jesus, Moses, and Muhammad all claim the authority of the sky god, the god of heaven, Jehovah. And in in classic Greco-Roman literature, the chief of the gods is the sky god Zeus, or Jupiter. All sky religions are patriarchal and hierarchical. The Buddha did not ask for help from heavenly beings. He asked the earth, Mother Earth. You know, religious historian Karen Armstrong wrote in her book, Buddha, about the earth witness mudra, or hand positions. She wrote, quote, It not only symbolizes Gautama's rejection of Mara's sterile machismo, but makes a profound point that a Buddha does, does indeed belong to the world. You know, the Dharma is exacting, but it is not against nature. The man or woman who seeks enlightenment is in tune with the fundamental structure of the universe. Buddhas and Buddhism belong to the earth, belong to this world. It teaches that nothing exists independently. The existence of all things are interdependent. Our existence depends on earth, air, water, and other forms of life, just as our existence depends on and is conditioned by those things, they are, they are also conditioned by our existence, and in most cases negatively conditioned or negatively affected. The more we realize that we are a part of both goose poop and billowy clouds, the more we will realize our very Buddha nature, our inherent wisdom, and escape our essential ignorance. Goose poop and billowy clouds are expressions of us, and we are expressions of them. When the earth confirmed the Buddha's enlightenment, the earth was confirming itself. The Buddha was confirming himself and ourselves as part of the Buddha and the earth, as the earth and Buddha are part of us. That's the end of blog post. You know, that blog post verbalizes the sense of refuge I find in Buddhism better than many things I've written or spoken about. You know, the, the word refuge and the concept refuge is an important Buddhist concept. As Buddhists, we take refuge or 
become Buddhists or are ordained as Buddhists and given a Buddhist name. When we take that first refuge, that's when we become officially Buddhists. But in our everyday Buddhist way of looking at things, where we don't have to take refuge and become officially Buddhist, refuge is none other than our safe spot, our asylum, our place to return to be protected and strengthened. For me, that is nature. In Buddhist mythology, the earth was the Buddha's witness to his enlightenment. For me, the earth is my witness to my true self, my calm self, my peaceful mind self, my Buddha nature. But this is not to say it's an escape. Refuge sounds like escape, but it's not. It's a re-strengthening because it's a re-strengthening by solidifying ourselves in things as they are. In nature, you are likely to step in goose poop or sit on bird poop, but that's okay because we then connect to the earth of which we are a part. Living in a modern city, we can easily ignore how all our activities actually connect with the earth. When we reflect on all the conveniences and technologies that are a part of our everyday life, it is easy to see the interconnections. You know, when you plug in the toaster, where's the energy coming from? And when you flush the toilet, where is the water coming from? And where did your waste go? And where did your morning coffee come from? And how did it get all the way to your kitchen? You know, the environmentalist slogan of thinking globally, acting locally is a good practice for us. And it's very aligned with Buddhist philosophy. We think globally by contemplating the interdependence of all things. Nothing exists except in relationship with other things. And then we act locally by using that knowledge, that wisdom, to live mindfully with a clear understanding of the reality, purposes, and consequences of all our daily actions. You know, One Earth Sangha suggests having simple conversations about how we think about climate change. They point to two different perspectives that might arise from these conversations. Some could think that climate change is a validation that humans are a curse upon the earth and she's shaking us off. The very earth is shaking us off. And two, another person could think a, a crisis that may usher in a widespread understanding of and response to our thorough belonging to an interdependence with the web of life. I choose to look at it that second way. I think with all crises, quote unquote, ec ecological, social, political, it encourages us to go deeper in our understanding, to be more quiet in our awareness and less reactive. So their teaching instruction, the One Earth Sangha's teaching instruction, is that the point is that there really is no one right way to frame the ecological social crisis. They write, quote, but rather we can make the frame itself an object of contemplation. This exemplifies one of the most powerful gifts of the Dharma. We can notice the effect of picking up a particular lens what meaning it gives to self, other, and world, what it might affirm, 
what it decries, and what it empowers. And then we can choose consciously the narrative or narratives in which we will dwell. That frame that will guide and nourish us, unquote. You know, the key for me in presenting an everyday Buddhist perspective to the subject of climate change and in building each of our own individual practices around it is in the development or development of or recommitment to sort of an active awareness of our everyday relationship with the earth. How can we tie this to a practice for one Earth Sangha's Earth Care Week as an individual practice focusing on Mother Earth? Well, we can try not being defeatist, resigned, unempowered, nor uninspired, thinking that because we're not leaders of governments or corporations and we have no agency to change things, we can find ways of caring for the earth by being more aware of how we too are connected to the earth and how the earth can be the witness to our own caring. We don't need to have someone or some government agency regulate our behavior. We only need to have a new mental attitude of remembering and honoring the earth. With that remembering, tiny habits can and may change. We could not drive our car as much. We could get rid of one car and only have one car. Um, we could not use pesticides. We could, there's a, we could donate to um, the solar fund or the uh, hydro fund in our, our, in our utility bill. There's many little ways we can do things without being big about it. And any of these little positive remembrance and habit changes can add up and will add up. You know, as individuals and as a species, we suffer from a sense of self that feels disconnected, not only from other people, but from the earth itself. As Titnat Han has said, quote, we are here to awaken from the illusion of our separateness, unquote. We need to remember that the earth is our mother and our own and our witness to our own great spiritual potential home in addition to being our home it's not just our earthly home but our spiritual home i firmly believe that the act of remembering is in itself a very powerful commitment from there it can serve to connect us to what is true for each of us and guide our daily actions and sustain sustain us in maybe one new earth-centered practice a day, one habit that we can take on and continue without any regrets. You know, if you would like to pursue some sort of vow or, or, or connection to a set of, um, I, I promise to do this, I promise to do that, um, in your practice, I will share the vows offered in the Echo Sattva training program in my show notes on my website. I, have also, I also suggest reading the book, The World We Have, A Buddhist Approach to Peace and Ecology by Thich Nhat Hanh, where he offers more insights and practices that can help you move from discouraged to peace. In this very book, he writes, quote, to effectively influence the future of our world, we need something more. Real strength can be found not in power, money, or weapons, but in deep inner peace. When we have enough insight, 
We are not caught by many difficult situations easily. When we change our daily lives, the way we think, speak, and act, we change the world. It is important for us to live in such a way that in every moment we are deeply there with our true presence, always alive and nourishing the insight of interbeing. Without peace and happiness, we cannot take care of ourselves, other species, or the plants. That's why the best way to care for the environment is to care for the environmentalist. Unquote. For more reflection in growing your awareness of the earth and our connection to it, I offer this other book recommendation, The Practice of the Wild by Gary Snyder. Actually, I, rem- I recommend any book by Gary Snyder. You know, Bill McKibben, the uh, renowned environmentalist and journalist, reviewed Gary Snyder's book with these lines, quote, Gary Snyder's deep hope that someday we might all be Native Americans at home in our grand place is the only hope we have. This is an exquisite book and a hard one. Read it and then live it as best you can, unquote. In closing, I will leave you with this from Gary Snyder's Practice of the Wild. The wilderness pilgrims step by step, breath by breath, walk up a trail into those snowfields, carrying all on the back, is so ancient a set of gestures as to bring a profound sense of body-mind joy. Not just backpackers, of course. The same happens to those who sail in the ocean. Kayak fjords or rivers tend a garden, peel garlic even sit on a meditation cushion. The point is, is to make intimate contact with the real world, the real self. Sacred refers to that which helps takes us, help take us out of our little selves into the whole mountains and rivers mandala universe. Inspiration, exaltation, and insight do not end when one steps outside of the doors of the church. The wilderness as a temple is only the beginning. One should not dwell in the specialness of the extraordinary experience, nor hope to leave the political quag behind to enter a perpetual state of heightened insight. The best purpose of such studies and hikes is to be able to come back to the lowlands, and see all the land about us, agricultural, suburban, urban, as part of the same territory, never totally ruined, never completely unnatural. It can be restored, and humans could live in considerable numbers in much of it. Great brown bear is walking with us, salmon swimming upstream with us. As we stroll, a city street. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for joining me. And thanks again to everyone who donated and commented on my podcast over the past weeks. I, as I said before, I always try to reach out. There's still a few I owe a a note to, but I always try to reach out with a private email of thanks, but be patient. The numbers are growing. My, my listener numbers are growing. My Commenter numbers are growing. 
Um, so it might take me a little time to get in touch. But as always, if you do like this podcast, please consider supporting my work through a recurring or one-time donation on my Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash Everyday Buddhism or through the donate page on my website, everydaybuddhism.com. Until next time, keep making your everydays better. <laughs>